Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. In an essential interview I have, and I'm very pleased to have Douglas Murray with us. He's the associate editor of The Spectator and the associate director of the Henry Jackson Society. He is the author of many books, including Bloody Sunday, Truth, Lies, and the Savile Inquiry, and, which we're going to focus a little bit on today, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam. You can check out the Henry Jackson Society website at, of course, henryjacksonsociety.org and follow Doug's great Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Douglas K. Murray. That's M-U-R-R-A-Y. Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time today. Great pleasure to be with you. It's a great book. It's almost an elegy. It's mournful. It's passionate. It's powerful. It's illuminating. And I really appreciate the fact that you, I guess, let the elephant of despair sit slowly on your chest while writing it. And um, one of the things that I got from the beginning was how much this is not a plan, like the sort of uh, immigration and, and migrants into Europe and so on, that everyone is kind of playing catch up on decisions that were made maybe with the best of intentions or with the least of information decades ago, and everyone's just trying to manage something that is uh, swelled beyond all original intention and that there really isn't much of a plan going on in Europe at the moment. That's right. I mean, I, um, I've written a number of books in my life. I've written a lot about history and uh, writing a history of the present, as it were, which this book seems to be. Um, I try to apply the same principles I would anywhere else. You know, quite often people uh, people tell you, you know, about conspiracies in the past, conspiracies in the present, plans in the past, plans in the present. My my general feeling with things is that most of history is cock up and it's the same with the present. It, it, you know, there's no great master plan, nobody, no brilliant group of people sit around a table and, you know, sort out everything. They Brilliant people get surprised by events react badly to them and make things worse. You know, it's a, it's a far more plausible uh, story. And the story of immigration and Europe in the post-war period right up to the present is really, in my view, I say early in the book, a, just a history of people making mistakes and then finding justifications for things that would have happened anyway. Yeah, and that I think is fascinating. And the same thing has happened uh, in America after the Ted Kennedy's 1965 Immigration Act, which fundamentally changed the culture and origin of immigration into the United States. There was, of course, it was presented as, well, you know, it's a small tweak and it's going to be nice. And uh, of course, in in Europe, there was the post-war labor shortage, of course, as partly as a result of the massive number of deaths in the Second World War. But the relationship between the justifications now and the original story is so tenuous as to cease to me uh, almost to exist at all. And therefore, it looks like people are just using ex ex post facto justifications to avoid any decisive action in the here and now. Yes, I think that's right. The the uh, I, I give a set early on in the book of the explanations that started to emerge once mass migration started into Europe in the post-war period. And they're all the same justifications we heard for the uh, migrant movement of recent years. You know, it's um, uh, we need it for economic reasons. Then, even if we don't need it for economic reasons, we need it for social reasons. We don't need it for social reasons. We need it for diversity and interest reasons, and and, and on and on. And the, the last of which is always, well, it, it doesn't matter because it would have happened anyway, and uh, you can't stop it. You know, um, globalised world means, of course, there are no borders and no restrictions, that, that, that argument. So, and I... I say them early on because one of the things that, that really just struck me during the height of the migrant crisis, as we now call it, in 2015 in Europe, 
is that every single one of the bogus arguments I'd heard throughout my adult life uh, for why migration had already been happening at such a scale just just came out even more. You know, there were people at train stations in Germany saying, you know, I, I won't do the accident. Uh, you know, it seems like a very sensible thing to me that we need to bring in, you know, a million people from sub-Saharan Africa uh, because we are aging in Germany, you know, as if, you know, I would say, migrants themselves don't also age. Um, <laughs> and um, it was just sort of something that comes as enormous surprise to a lot of policymakers. Um, but, but no, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I think it is all just, as you say, I mean, it's explanations for something that had been allowed to happen anyway. Well, and I find it astonishing that on the one hand, you have social planners, central planners, social engineers in the government who claim a near omnipotent power to affect future events. You know, we, we're going to control the temperature of the planet in a 100 years. You know, we're going to take trillions of pounds from one group and give it to another group. And we're not going to have any perverse incentives. We're not going to have any problems, going to be able to socially engineer just about anything that you can uh, imagine. We're going to have foreign aid and dump trillions of pounds into the third world. And it's never going to corrupt anyone. And we're going to sell arms all over the world. And it's never going to end up in the wrong hands. They have this absolutely astounding megalomaniacal, narcissistic, grandiose, whatever it is, perception of their ability to alter future events, manipulate cultures and weaponry around the world. But when it comes to enforcing existing laws in the country, well, then they just throw up their hands and say, well, we, we can't possibly achieve any of that. Yeah, I mean, early in the book, I explained the case with Britain in the late 1990s onwards, when the Blair government, the Labour government of the period, really... Um, just swelled immigration into the UK in unfathomable numbers. Uh, and this was, again, I mean, this was before the, the migrant crisis of recent years. And, you know, I said, I give in the book some of the examples of the people in charge at that time in the Labour government who, who basically decided that, that it wasn't worth enforcing the law anymore. Um, that the, the, the same thing happened as it happened in North America, that a set of pro-mass migration groups for their own reasons, blur the line between legal and illegal immigration, legal and illegal immigrants, make sure there's no punishment for illegal immigration, make sure that if you in any way criticize or demonize illegal immigration, you are anti all immigrants and so on. Until basically, you know, what they've done is made the law unimportant, which for societies like ours that are founded on the rule of law is a profound attack on the basis of our societies as well as something which, from its you know, consequences, helps to very seriously atomize our societies. Well, and I, you know, diversity uh, is, is one debate, but certainly diversity should not involve balkanization of the legal system. It should not involve a fragmentation of the legal system, wherein different rules apply to different people, because one, of course, uh, alongside sort of culture and history and geography and so on, one of the defining characteristics of a nation is the universal application of laws in a geographical region. And if a white person wishes to move from California to the UK or to other places in Europe, they must go through a fairly significant, lengthy and bureaucratic process. But if other people can just wander in, I think that's going to cause resentment, not as a result of racism, but as a result of anybody who you feel is stepping in ahead of you in the line is, is not subject to the laws of the nation and thus poses an existential threat to the unity of laws that to some degree at least does define a nation state. Yeah, and also, of course, put on that, I agree with everything you just said, but I mean, put on that, of course, the issue of the welfare state, whereby the central pact that, you know, you pay in and sometimes take out, and 
you kind of take out because you did pay in or you pay in, but you don't mind somebody you know is taking out because they're just on hard times or whatever. The sort of central packs of the welfare state break down entirely when very large numbers of people who've never paid in, but will take out a great amount, despite what all the lies that are concocted to argue otherwise. Um, you know, all of these things also just chip away at foundational trust, among other things, in a social welfare democracy. Now, another aspect of migration uh, in, in Europe, and we're not just talking about the migrant crisis, this has been going on since the post-war period, as you point out, is the extraordinarily wide divergence between the ruling elites, the political classes, the academics, the mainstream media, and the average person on the street. Uh, one of the sort of polls that you mentioned in your book, April 1968 poll by Gallup, found that 75% of the British public believed that controls on immigration were not strict enough. That later rose to 83%. And we see this over and over again, particularly with regards to sort of third world or Muslim immigration, that people say, whoa, let's, let's see if this experiment is going to work before we start piling more and more on. I wonder if you can help people to understand just how big this divergence is and where it may have come from. It's been growing for years in um, in Britain. I mean, the, the 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 migration debate in Britain was dominated for many decades by the shadow of a politician who many people will have heard of, called Enoch Powell, a member of the shadow cabinet of the Conservative Party, who made a speech in 1968 that was known as, although he never used the words, as the rivers of blood speech, in which he, he foresaw great trouble down the road. Some of what Powell predicted uh, has come true. Some of it has not. Some of what he said was right, some was wrong. But um, it's very striking that although uh, the political class as a whole in 1968 uh, came down on Enoch Powell, uh, he was expelled from the shadow cabinet for this speech. Not only were uh, most of the figures he mentioned, I mean, I mean, I mean, vastly understating what ended up being the reality in Britain. But what's so striking is that that even then in 1968, the very significant majority of the public were um, in support of him, thought that the, pri that the Conservative leader was quite wrong to have sacked him from the shadow cabinet. And a left-wing Conservative politician of the time says that he thought that if Enoch Powell had have had control of the Conservative Party and run as Prime Minister, he would have got a landslide majority that, uh, uh, that year. Um, this, this was quite normal. Um, I give throughout the book examples of polls from France and and uh, and polls right up to the present across the continent. They keep showing this picture. And um, by the way, I mean, an interesting nugget on this is that the European peoples are constantly demonized for their alleged, you know, racism, nativism, um, and every other imaginable, uh, uh, um, you know, wickedness. And the striking thing is actually that despite their views being uh, um, not just ignored, but lambasted and derided and so clearly not listened to by basically an entirety of the mainstream of the political class. Despite that, you know, the, the European publics didn't have pogroms. They, they, they didn't, you know, take to the streets and riot. They, they just have consistently, and I think don't get enough acknowledgement for this, just accepted that, that on this matter, nobody listens to them. And um, But it hasn't meant that, you know, we, the European peoples, have become, you know, wicked in response. We just, I think most people, it's a, one of the tones I try to hit in the book, I think we're just rather sad that the political class is so uninterested in the views of the public on this matter. And it strikes me 
that there's a parallel between the sort of insistence of the upper classes that uh, the, the poorer classes, the working classes and so on, need to get swept up in wars that they don't necessarily agree with and don't necessarily understand, alongside with this great experiment in multiculturalism and diversity, which could be more cynically characterized as vote buying for leftist politicians. But that's like, well, sorry, you don't like it. Sorry, it's too bad. You have to be drafted into a war and you have to be drafted into this multicultural experiment. It seems that there's a kind of continuity of elitist arrogance where the elite, they're not dead jobs aren't being threatened by migrants they're not being pushed out of their neighborhoods by by immigration so there is a kind of blissful unawareness of the impact on the uh, average britain or the lower class britons which seems to me strikingly similar to some of the indifference in past colonial activities and and wartime activities where it's just like sorry you have to do it because we have the power well i think that i think that one of the things that really came across very clearly to me when i was researching and writing this book was that there is, of course, among uh, politicians, a certain type of politician uh, in all of our countries who um, basically has a vision uh, of the sort of societies that Europe is becoming. And uh, that is the sort of uh, politician who says, you know, I'm a citizen of the world. I'm cool with a sort of multicultural city and I'm cool with a very diverse world city. And therefore, why not have a, a, a world country? or a world continent. There's a sort of politician that has that view. There's also the type, and I mean, if one referred to it as the elites, uh, um, not a term I tend to like, but but if you use that term for this, it's also definitely a type of person for whom all of this, you know, is really rather pleasant. Um, they get cheap cleaners, uh, cheap nannies, um, good sort of cheap service staff, um, they, get, they enjoy those benefits, they enjoy the some of the cultural benefits, but they also have the money to live precisely where they want to live. And that tends not to be in the places and in the sort of bifurcated communities that the rest of the country doesn't have a choice about. I give an example, by the way, in the book from Sweden. There's a hilarious study. I mean, you've got to take your laughs where you can in this subject. There's a hilarious, by, by my standards, study of a couple of years ago in Sweden of people's attitudes towards um, so-called multicultural and diverse areas. And one of the most amazing things about it is that the people who who move who move to the least diverse areas are the ones most in favour of people living in diverse areas. You're, 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 it's like you don't want it for yourself, but you think it's improving for other people or you don't want it for yourself. But at dinner parties, you'll say how much you are in favour of it. I mean, it's. These are sort of juggling games that uh, Europeans have got used to. Well, we're all, you know, there's something in human nature where we love to display our status. And if people can't see your roles, they can assume from your pro-diversity mantras that you're not living uh, in, in some of the more challenging areas uh, in, in London or, or in other places in Europe. It seems to me a kind of virtue signaling or status signaling to be so pro-diversity. By the way, I mean, the interesting thing about the diversity thing is that, as I say uh, about a lot of things in this book, you know, the problem is that they, they take advantage, these things take advantage of a good instinct. I mean, like I say, who of us doesn't want to know as much as we can about the world and its people and, uh, you know, the whole range of cultures and, and so on? I mean, I think it's a quite different thing 
to then say, and as a result of my, uh, uh, um, you know, our intellectual curiosity, the whole world should come and live with us. But, but it, you know, it starts from a perfectly reasonable instinct. You know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to have a diversity of a kind. Now, the question is, of course, when does it become uninteresting? When, do you, when does it stop repaying uh, 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 the interest you're taking on it? And when does the diversity become undiverse? Um, you know, the first hundred people um, from Pakistan bring a certain amount of cultural interest. Uh, do the next thousand and the next million and the next four million and the next ten million. When is the point when you've you've kind of got enough of what you need to know and learn and and to experience? And these these are very unpleasant in a way discussions to have, but they are the one that we're living through in a way. And our unwillingness to even address it is a big part of the problem, only made worse by the fact that this isn't a science. It's not like you could you could work out on a chart, you know, the the point at which you become uninterested in in something or think you've you've had enough of it. But uh, but this is what we're all living through. And so we ought to be able to talk about it. Well, and. I think that your earlier point, Douglas, about the welfare state is something well worth for people to dwell on. Because a lot of times people say, well, America was a nation of immigrants. And I've even heard that England Mm. (laughs) is a nation of immigrants, which I find – I grew up in England and I just find the idea very – you really, really have to stretch history beyond the breaking point to make that kind of case. Of course, there are loads of people who are willing to stretch history beyond breaking point. And, um, yeah, they always say about – I mean, yes, there's a plausible, you know, um, explanation of America as a a nation of immigrants. There is a totally implausible claim about Britain where, I mean, you know, the Norman Conquest was the biggest event in the last millennium in in Britain. And it changed the population by about 5%. That was an invasion of of Britain. Uh, And um, really, I mean, in the last couple of millennium, really what you're talking about in terms of immigration to Britain is – some people from Ireland moving over to the mainland of Britain and vice versa. And, uh, you know, 50,000 French Protestants came in the 17th century. And that that's pretty much, you know, that's pretty much the only movement we're talking about of any meaning. So it just isn't the case, albeit there are masses of people who want to argue the line. It just isn't the case. You know, we had huge movements from sub-Saharan Africa throughout the 15th century into the UK. You know, I mean, it, it just didn't happen. And and in America, of course, and this was specifically by design for the immigration policy, the vast majority of immigrants were from Western Europe. Uh, a lot of them were Protestants. They were white, of course, similar backgrounds, similar histories. But most importantly, without the honey part of the welfare state, it was fairly safe to assume that people who moved to America in, say, the 18th and 19th centuries moved to America because they valued the American system in some manner. It gave them freedom. It gave them land. It gave them opportunity. And so they moved there because they weren't bribed to be there. It's the difference between dating and hiring a prostitute. If you hire a prostitute, you she's is she there for you or is she there for the money? And this comes, and I know that's a harsh way to characterize immigrants. It really is an analogy. But if people are coming to England because they value the British frame of mind, the British way of life, British liberties, British philosophy, and so on, I say the more the merrier. If, however, there's this giant payout called the welfare state, are people coming there because they value British uh, values or because uh, they can make 10 times I, I know that in europe they can make 10 times on the welfare state what they could make in their home country so are they there for the values or are they there for the money if they're there for the money this seems to me a significant powder keg because statistically the money can't continue yes yeah that's uh, th- this is an absolutely key one again a bit of the, there's a by the way there's a strange thing that goes on in europe i think it does where you are as well where about half the people say you know we don't talk about immigration 
and another half say, what are you talking about? We're always talking about immigration. Uh, I've often wondered why there's this um, talking past each other. But one of the feelings I have is that it's because we just don't have the conversation we should be having about immigration. Unfortunately, that's exactly the conversation that you and I are now having. But just 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 to get to that absolutely key uh, uh, um, foundational point on it, you see, as you say, if if somebody wants to come to Europe because they really want to be European, I don't really have any problem with that. I, I, I admire that. I like it. And I do know of some uh, people like that. I know of people who so love Britain of all sorts of races and backgrounds uh, that they, they want to be in Britain and they want to be as British, you know, as they think everyone else is and, and so on. And and then, of course, you have this other thing, which is, I mean, there are often polls done of uh, immigrant groups which tend to ask the wrong questions, things like, you know, how happy are you to be in Britain? Well, I mean, surprise, surprise, most people are very happy. You know, they're, they're very happy to be living in a country where there's a welfare state and when where they have, you know, a whole set of freedoms and so on, which allow them to live basically the lives that they want to live. But but all the time, of course, we, uh, uh, the publics, have noticed something. And again, this is something which isn't, it isn't science. I give all sorts of stats in my book, but one of the things I tried to do is to explain the, the thing that we all just sort of noticed and never really talked about, such as this. If it was the case that when people from Pakistan and Bangladesh came and moved into the northern mill towns of, uh, of Britain, firstly to do labour and then after the jobs had dried up, uh, if they were indeed, as we always pretend, as British as everyone else, then, you know, it just wouldn't be the case that you'd have these towns where basically everyone is dressed for the foothills of Pakistan and um, some women are dressed for the Arabian desert uh, circa, you know, seventh century. And um, and uh, they th- th- this wouldn't be the case. They, they would be, be, I mean, you know, for better or worse, I wouldn't enforce it, but I just, you know, it just you would notice that they would be sort of dressing like everyone else and they'd be going down to the pub and they'd be failing to turn up to church most weeks but would go for family weddings and funerals and so on. And, and it just obviously isn't the case. I mean, you just need to travel around any of these towns and you just notice it's it's a different culture living in the towns. And some people love that. Obviously, for the people who come, it's very good. Uh, and some people are just saddened by it, saddened because we think, well, you never asked us about this. And we see just a very, very fundamental change to a society that we loved. Well, and of course, if you wish to experience Middle Eastern culture, there's an entire Middle East you can go and visit. But if you wish to experience quintessentially British culture, it seems like it's a bit of a shrinking geography uh, these days. Because, of course, if people want to live in in Arabic or Muslim countries or or if they want to go and live in Pakistan, they they can. But uh, as you point out at the beginning of the book, uh, Europeans have no other place to call home. Yes, I mean, this is... This is this is the, the central, as it were, pain in all of this is that is that Europe in this weird thing of deciding that Europe is the home for anyone in the world who wants to move in and call it home uh, ends up taking away the only home the European peoples have. I I say at one point in the book, you know, the we talk forever about the the, the, the rights and the duties we might owe people coming into Europe. And I've traveled all around, you know, the places, the reception points, the places where people come in. I've spoken to the people literally just off the boats, seen them come in. And, you know, the thing is about this is that we talk about the boats of, of the people coming in. But but I say toward the end of the book, what if what if this is our boat 
And what if the discussion we've been having, which presumes that this boat of Europe is a vast cruise liner that can just keep on taking on people on board that it finds in the oceans around it, if instead of that being the case, we're actually ourselves a rather smaller and more uh, uh, volatile vessel, um, more vulnerable vessel, and that we actually keep taking people on board, and at some point the whole thing capsizes. And capsizes, I say, the only thing we have to call a vessel which is our home. It is a it's a chilling thought where this kind of stuff can lead. And the other thing I think regarding the welfare state is integration is, I guess, was the original idea. I mean, if everyone had been told at the beginning, well, we're going to bring people in from the third world, we're going to pay them to set up their own communities, uh, and then they're going to try and set up parallel legal systems, and then they're going to do this, and and your tax bill is going to go up enormously, and it's going to be hard for you to find housing, and your housing is going to be very expensive, and there's going to be lots of problems for your kids in schools, and violence, and criminal. If this was all told, of course, nobody would vote for it, but of course, it never is told that way. And even the people who frame it may not have the information or the foresight to see where it's going to go. But in the, in the presence of the welfare state, it seems that the incentive to integrate becomes diminished to the point of virtually being non-existent. Like if I go to Japan with $1,000 in my pocket and intend to stay for a couple of years, I'm going to have to adapt to the local customs. If I don't learn anything about the local customs or learn anything about the local language, it's going to, very, it's going to be very hard for me to make a go of it in that society. And this is another thing, of course, in the 19th century when people came to America, they had to learn English, they had to adapt to local customs, they were subject to the same laws and so on. But if you pay people the welfare state, you're basically building an economic moat around them that they can perfectly well survive and flourish, indeed, in your society without adopting any of the mainstream values. Yeah, and I mean, the, uh, by the way, the, uh, the example you give of housing prices and things is an amazing uh, thing. In Britain, we need to build about 300,000 new homes a year. Um, something we, we really keep failing to do. Um, and I mean, you've basically got to build a city nearly the size of Liverpool uh, every 18 months or every year or so. And uh, we keep failing to do it. And it's the reason why actually young people in Britain find it incredibly hard to get on the property ladder. It's incredibly expensive to buy property in the UK. And uh, almost nobody ever mentions that 300,000 is pretty much exactly the net immigration figures into Britain uh, in an average year. I mean, you know, who'd have guessed that people moving into Britain would need somewhere to live? I mean, but the climate but, is so balmy, right? And they just tent on the beaches. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's um, it, it's also this, by the way. And just going back to that point you made about the uh, uh, nobody expecting the integration or or, or, or you know demanding it. it, it's so much worse than that, isn't it? Because as I say at one point in the book, go back to five years before Angela Merkel opened the borders of Europe to the world officially. Go back five years before that to a speech that Angela Merkel made in Potsdam in 2010. Famous speech at the time in which she declared that multiculturalism had failed, utterly failed, was her term. I go into this in some, in some depth in the book. It's a thing that fascinated me at the time. It made headlines around the world when she said it. One of the things, by the way, I mean, apart from the fact that, isn't it bonkers, that you would say that this thing had failed and then five years later massively ramp up the thing that had caused the failure in the first place. But, but... But just to go back to that initial point, the interesting thing about that 2010 Merkel speech is that in it she said something else which was extraordinary. Um, She said, we had expected the guest workers to go home. That In the 1950s, when Germany invited Turkish and other guest workers in to help rebuild the country, and it wasn't just that one speech, we know this from all sorts of other sources, 
German authorities and others didn't expect the migrants to stay. The expectation was that they would do the job and then return home. Of course, you know, who would blame anyone? You invite them into your country. If you're a young man with a job, you've also got a wife, you bring in your wife. And if you're with your wife, you're very likely to do things that might lead to children. And then once you have children, they're going to need to go to school. All of this is totally predictable. Uh, but nobody did predict it. So then when everyone has the integration argument, we, we, we forget that we never expected to get to the stage where you were talking about integration. And then once we did, we didn't know whether we wanted integration or not. I mean, there's a whole set of things that happened. There was, it was a long period in, his, in, in Europe over recent decades where actually we didn't particularly encourage people to integrate quite the opposite. Well, that's we the said, whole point of diversity, diversity or integration. You can only pick one in the long run. Yeah, and, and we sort of went back and forth for a bit. And currently we say we're about integration, but really there's no evidence we are. I mean, look, look let's face it. Angela Merkel now says that people uh, who come to live in Germany should learn to speak German. I mean, wow. After all of these decades, I mean, that's the demand. And by the way, what happens, Miss Merkel, what happens if, if they say, um, if they no, they're not particularly inclined to speak German? What are you going to do then? Nothing. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the spiritual vacuum created by the decline of Christianity, which you have a, a very long and powerful piece in the book about. And, of course, Christianity with its concept of original sin and uh, the, the need to redeem yourself for the sins, uh, well, I guess intergenerational, all the way back to Adam and Eve, sins of, of history, it's almost like, uh, to paraphrase what you're saying in the book, and you know, correct me, of course, if I go astray, but it's almost like when original sin was taken out of the consciousness, the need for for guilt and self-flagellation and self-punishment seems to have been replaced by a revisionist historical narrative that have painted Europeans as the basic devils of the world. Yeah, there is something, and this is a sort of truth I'm trying to get to. Yes, it's just because you lose your religion doesn't mean you lose the impulses of religion or indeed the memories of it. And I do think there's a sort of secularized version of Christianity which exists for the better in all sorts of ways and with some very unpleasant connotations along the way. The, the, the concept of original sin, as it's now been translated into European politics, is particularly um, filled with iniquity for, for one reason in particular, which is this. Um, the, the religious notion of sin uh, in the Christian understanding can, of course, come to redemption. Um, and the non-religious post-Christian idea of sin has no redemption apart from self-destruction. So the idea that we in Europe, and indeed I say in the book, this is the same thing that America, Canada, Australia, and indeed Israel, I would argue, all the countries that are sort of seen to be, rightly or wrongly, sort of cousins or, or offspring of the European culture. Um, all of these countries also are alleged to suffer from an original sin, which we we put on no other societies. I mean, you just you never hear someone saying that there is an original sin in Turkey and that as a result, the world must move into Turkey and abolish basically Turkish culture. Um, it's only it's only the Western uh, countries that have it. And as I say, if you have a sin like this, I think this is very much the debate that America is going through still to do with race and reparations and all this sort of stuff. There's this endless, endless question of how you could uh, um, absolve yourself 
of the sin of racism, colonialism, and so on. And again, I mean, you know, what educated, sensible person wouldn't recognize the wrongs that their ancestors had done? But but to end up in this situation where where it's as if they are always before you, these sins, at the same time that the rest of the world, I mean, you never hear anyone saying, you know, um, we must go and find reparations for the people who Genghis Khan and his uh, his crew, you know, uh, moved out of their homes. But yet we, weirdly in the West, are these people whose guilt is ever before us. And the only answers you ever come to are basically, therefore, we must destroy ourselves. These are these are sins without redemption. And and as I say, the only redemption being the fire of self-destruction. It's this, It's why we have the culture of self-abnegation, as the conservative philosopher Roger Scruton once termed it, uh, that, that means that we, we have to war on ourselves. It is an extraordinary perspective when you zoom out in that kind of way. And it is something that does seem to be endemic to the West. I mean, certainly there are religious reasons, there are cultural reasons, there are, I think, some some leftist guilt-provoking reasons but I also think that there are economic reasons So, far, insofar as, I mean, if there is any group, I would argue, any group that should be least criticized for the institution of slavery, it would be white Western European Christians for, for two basic reasons. Number one, they indulged in the practice of slavery for only a few hundred years, basically, and, and uh, ended the institution uh, in their own countries as soon as humanly possible. And so they, they, I mean, if you compare it to the Muslim slave trade, which is reported to have killed over 100 million Africans in the most brutal fashions, including uh, the removal of, of, uh, of the testicles and so on, that is a the brutal situation. So the, the white Western European Christians engaged in slavery for the least amount of time and expended untold blood and treasure to end the practice worldwide. And I think what that does is you stand up and you say, wow, we really hate and fear and feel terrible about slavery, so we're going to work really hard to end it. And I think what that does to other cultures around the world is say, ah, those guys feel really, really bad about this. Let's install the racism button. Let's install the colonialism button. Let's keep pounding it and pounding it and pounding it, because every time we do, they cough up free resources for us. It's like we've become this vending machine, and then we wonder why we keep getting pounded with these insults. It's because we pay to make them go away, and therefore we're only, you know, supply creates its own demand. Yes, I mean, that's why I say, I repeatedly use the description of us in my book as, as being masochists. I mean, we we are actually paying people uh, to beat us up. It's an extraordinary thing. And, and sometimes in the most uh, visible ways, um, the, uh, the number of terrorists we now have across the continent of Europe, who after they detonate, or after they persuade other people to detonate in our cities, turn out to have been receiving welfare payments right up until the moment. You know, um, I, there was a guy in uh, Britain, I'm sure you heard from over there, called Anjem Chowdhury, who, who now mercifully is in prison. He was a long-time adversary of mine. Uh, we crossed swords on many occasions. Uh, Anjem Chowdhury was a you know really vile uh, hate preacher who, who recruited people uh, to terrorist uh, causes. He, he used to take uh, £25,000 a year in welfare payments in Britain. And when um, one of our soldiers, uh, drummer Lee Rigby, was decapitated on the streets of London in 2013 uh, by two people who were close to the Chowdhury network, uh, Chowdhury uh, um, and co. were all over the uh, airwaves making excuses for these killers and refusing to condemn them. 
But very few people pointed out, I tried to at the time, that the starkest thing about this was that Anjem Chowdhury was better paid by the British state than drummer Lee Rigby was. That is insane. We may not be the first society in human history to be paying both sides in a conflict, but we're probably the first societies in human history to pay our enemies better than we pay our own troops. And this is what I mean by this sort of conscription. You conscript the bodies of people in war, and you're now conscripting the money of people in the pursuit of this uh, utopian fantasy, um, and it is really appalling. The British people not only are not consulted on any regular basis, and I would argue, as you point out in the book, I think, Douglas, that the politicians in the UK and across Europe regularly stand tall, Spine stiffened and, and snarl particular invective into the wind about controlling immigration and that's enough and we need to have borders and then betray regularly the, the, the public who vote them in, I think, on the grounds of wanting some limits to all of this kind of stuff. Not only are they not asked as to whether they fundamentally want to be replaced because as the birth rate of immigrants grows up, the birth rate of the domestic population goes down, which means it's not an addition to society. Uh, England is not England plus Immigration. England is immigrant. Uh, England is English minus English people plus immigrants uh, over the long run, and nobody's asked. And and of course they're forced to pay for this through the redistributionist welfare state. Yeah, yeah. I say it one, but there, there was a great myth for a long time that uh, that immigrants uh, um, brought more in in e- e- economic terms than they took out. And a study I cite in my book from a few years ago actually was from a university in London, was was used to argue this precise point. It did the usual thing. You, know, you pretend that your average immigrant is a Luxembourgian hedge funder you know, or a, a sort of French startup. You know, they, they always pull off this trick. But you have to really uh, do a lot of fiddling uh, uh, to, to, to persuade people that, as I said earlier, that people who've not paid in suddenly, miraculously, in a few years, pay in throughout what everyone else has put in in their lives. But actually, that found that over a 15-year period, uh, uh, migrants into the UK had taken out something like 130 billion more in uh, welfare than they had put in in taxes. And again, I mean, who who wouldn't know that that was the case? How, how could you, uh, if you moved in with a family to Britain, how could you be putting in uh, enough uh, within a couple of months to cover what everyone else and their families have put in for generations? And of course, if you're that economically valuable and that economically motivated, then why on earth would your home country be so economically devastated? This is, I mean, there are, of course, some people who come from from, uh, conflicts and so on, although, uh, as far as I understand it, being uh, the victim of a a war-torn country is not enough for you to get refugee status because war is just one of the inevitable products of of, uh, social conflict. Some might even say diversity plus proximity. But um, there is, to me, a kind of racism involved even in this whole idea that these countries can't sort themselves out, that white people need to rescue all of these people from their incredible – why can't these countries sort themselves out? I mean, the the basic principles of a free and democratic society were invented or discovered or promulgated centuries ago and were even sometimes imposed by various European – uh, empires and colonial systems uh, over the last few hundred years. You know, separation of church and state, economic freedom, limited democracy, small government, respect for property rights, uh, lower corruption. All of these things are not patented by the West. Any country, any culture can impose them or develop them as they see fit. And the idea, well, they just can't do it over there, so we have to bring them here, otherwise they have no chance of freedom. Why can't they do it over there? Are you saying that they can't run their own countries? I mean, isn't that kind of racist in and of itself? 
Yes, one of the things I found most fascinating on my travels, this book, was um, if, if finding out for myself what I had already sort of guessed, which was that uh, the, this migrant crisis of 2015 in particular was not actually primarily a, a Syrian crisis. Uh, this was something I mean, you could tell from a lot of the coverage that already took place, but I wanted to see it firsthand. One of the fascinating things I say is that because if you present it to the public as being, the people who want to come to Europe, who are coming on boats, are all fleeing certain death in Syria and are basically, and this has been done, by the way, by the organized churches, by uh, religious leaders of all faiths in Europe and by almost the entirety of the political class. If you say basically these migrants are like Jews fleeing Nazi Germany, then you tell you tell us and remind us of something every country in the West in particular uh, thinks, which is if we'd have known what we knew after, and even if we'd known what we knew at the time, who wouldn't have taken in more refugees from Nazi Germany? Of course, there's one problem about this, which is that, I mean, actually nobody that I can think of in Syria, I mean, there are some groups like Yazidis who have been subjected to genocide in recent uh, years. But basically, I can't think of any particular group that you could say are actually directly analogous with a Jew fleeing Nazi Germany. I mean, who, you know, i.e. a regime dedicated to the total annihilation of their people. And um, so anyway, but we have this equivalence and it plays on our minds. And again, the people who push for the mass migration, which is all sorts of parts of civil society as well as across politics, deliberately then elide the difference between not only between a Jew fleeing Nazi Germany and a Syrian wanting to escape the civil war in their home country, but between the Syrian wanting to escape the civil war in their own country and everybody else in the world who wants to move to Europe. So in the Italian points of entry, uh, the Syrians don't really come anymore. It's almost all sub-Saharan Africans, and in particular, young sub-Saharan African males. There are also some North Africans in with them. If you go to the Greek points of entry, yes, there are some Syrians, um, but they are also people fleeing from Afghanistan. Of course, by the way, people then say, oh, well, this is all to do with the West's wars. No. Uh, uh, also, large numbers of people from Pakistan. My country, Britain, has very good relations with Pakistan. But yet we have many, many people fleeing Pakistan. We also have people fleeing Bangladesh. We have people fleeing Myanmar. It really, it's, it's, it's a very, very wide number of people coming. And now, you see, then you get Western politicians who say things like, well, if we could just solve the Syrian civil war, then we could solve the migrant crisis. Absolute rubbish. That's why I wanted to see this all firsthand. Because, and I said to policymakers across the continent who I've spoken to on this, how can you believe this lie? Even if you thought it was within our gift to solve the Syrian civil war and bring peace to that land, as, as I wish it was, but it just doesn't seem to be. Even if it was in our gift and we could do it tomorrow, you know, what's the plan for making Eritrea a booming uh, um, free society in the coming months? You know, um, what's your plan for Bangladesh, uh, where you've got such good diplomatic relations and and so on, but people still flee because it's a, a very, very unfree country and a, a very persecuting country for people of all sorts of minorities? You know, what's your plan for these people? And, of course, the answer is they don't have a plan for any of it. The only plan is let's let's take in the third world into Europe. And the result, I think, is that you make Europe more like the third world. And that's about it. Well, I guess uh, their only plan is to avoid the smoking crater they see 
uh, of Enoch Powell's career and and the schoolmaster that that you point out. So I think their only plan is to avoid destroying their careers by being called a racist. Uh, it's really a defensive plan that has nothing to do with the long term good of the society. Because of course, if the people who are leaving, let's say Pakistan, if the people who are leaving Pakistan and coming to England are very pro freedom, very pro free markets, very pro limited government, very pro separation of church and state. What does that mean to the future of Pakistan if all of the people who are dedicated to freedom and limited government leave Pakistan? It means that Pakistan is going to get worse and worse and worse, which means more and more people are going to come. How is taking the best uh, of the third world and moving it to the first world do anything other than condemning the third world to continued decline and continued migration? And, 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 this seemed, and the other thing, too, I mean... The, the, the Nazi argument, uh, you know, it's an old principle of internet debating that whoever brings up the Nazis first loses. But uh, it would be a little bit easier to make the case that the um, – and this is a generalization, of course, but the, I think you'll back me up on the statistics, uh, Douglas. But uh, it would be a little bit easier to make the case that the migrants were like Jews if a lot of the migrants who came into the first world didn't have such anti-Semitic views. <laughs> that seems to me a little bit of a square circle that's impossible to sand down. Yes, uh, it, it's it's an amazing, um, amazing thing, this. By the way, there's a fantastic little episode on this. In the UK um, – the uh, chief rabbi uh, of the UK, uh, a man called Ephraim Mervis, uh, and a, a delegation of other prominent British rabbis went to uh, the Greek islands. I think they went to Lesbos uh, a couple of years ago at the height of the crisis and uh, helped uh, uh, um, bring you know people ashore sort of thing and hand out packages and do a bit of aid and have a photo taken and so on. And again, I don't deny there's, uh, you know, good intentions behind this. And a lot of Jewish people, like a lot of other people, make the equivalents and so on. There's a fascinating thing that happened. The um, the, the, the rabbis, including the chief rabbi, uh, in all the photos I noticed, were wearing baseball bats, uh, baseball bats, baseball caps. And I noticed this in the, in the photos. I thought, that's very strange. I mean, it might be a new form of rabbi chic, but I'd never seen them uh, wearing uh, them before in Britain and so on. And, and, um, and it, it was hot, but you know, anyhow. And I, I looked into this a bit, and it turned out that the security advice that the rabbis were given was that they should cover their skull caps in case the people who they were welcoming ashore, as it were, recognized they were Jews and attacked them. Now, now, I I think this is this doesn't mean you don't help any migrants. I, I take that. It doesn't mean you don't help asylum seekers. But why not say at the very least, look, um, this is a a set of competing virtues, as it were. I say this at one point in the book. We, we're so used to this crappy studenty style of debate that only knows about sort of you know, debaters being, I'm, you know, I'm Churchill, you're Hitler, you know, and, and so on, I'm going to win. I'm good, you're bad. It's basically, by the way, the only reason they use the Hitler analogy is that nobody knows anything anymore. Ask a student at an American college, or indeed at many British universities, but I'm afraid American colleges seems to be worse these days. Ask them to name any other bad guy in history, and I think they'd be stumped, you know, it's Hitler or broke. Um, so, so, but anyway, but but if if you recognise that 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 current events like history are more complicated than always just being a matter of Hitler versus Churchill, um, you'd recognise that sometimes there are competing virtues. Now, now the virtue of helping some migrants and some people actually fleeing war should also compete with a thing of, for instance, if it's so likely that a lot of people 
people coming, not a majority, maybe a majority, who knows, are going to be, for instance, anti-Semites, then at least bring that into the discussion. But it's a literal cover-up of a very big question we ought to have been asking. By the end of uh, 2015, early 2016, a spate of anti-Semitic attacks in Germany and elsewhere, it started to become part of the German debate. What if we, Germany, a country that has historically not been immune to anti-Semitism, are actually importing people into our country who will bring anti-Semitism back? Uh, a German uh, a cabinet minister admits, yeah, oh, no, no um, we don't want more people in Germany who might have anti-Semitic views. Well, no, no, as we say, if you don't part of it, you know, shit, Sherlock, you know, um, why, uh, why don't we have this debate ever? Why do we, on the one hand, there are people who like to pretend that absolutely everybody who arrives in Europe from the, you know, developed world, developing world is a, you know, suicide bomber waiting to prime. And obviously that's not the case. Uh, but nor is it the case that they're all saints. Nor is it the case that they, that they don't bring attitudes with them. And, and I suppose one of the central conundrums of all of this, which I just wish people had thought about, but at least we can think about now, is, is, is what are the ideas that people bring? What are the things that we say we can't put up with? And what do we do when we say we can't put up with something? Well, and of course, uh, one of the more challenging aspects, uh, I've had a number of experts uh, in the intelligence field come on my show and tell me that tragically at the moment the average IQ in sub-Saharan Africa is about 70 and nobody knows how to magically change that number or how to integrate that level of um, disparity uh, into uh, a society with an average IQ of about 100. I mean these are challenges that need to be uh, talked about but need to be discussed and it is to me very frustrating that bringing basic uh, facts and and information to a debate uh, is just is screamed down and and is so emotional and and as you point out in the book the picture of the the boy who drowned on the shores of Turkey was somehow laid at the feet of of Europe which is a a huge challenge and and why is this tragic and an awful death not laid at the feet of Turkey or not laid at the feet of his father who fled a safe country or left a safe country voluntarily? And why is it necessarily that that boy's image is the only thing that's remembered and not the images of the 1,400 girls in Rotherham who were uh, doused in, on, in, in gasoline, who were, who were passed around as, as rape chattel, uh, these young uh, white girls by these uh, gangs? Why is it that we only see one side of the equation of tragedy and why is it finally if we want to help people uh, as you point out in the book you can get much more bang for your pound by helping people stay in the middle east close to where they could return rather than bring them over i've seen numbers as 12 to 13 times more efficient to help people in the middle east rather than bring them to europe yeah i think even more this is only like a hundred times more costly to house a migrant in sweden than it is to, to house them in a neighboring country to syria for instance uh, uh, of course, uh, I think. By the way, I mean gradually, people are starting to recognise this that it's it's much more desirable that if you are, for instance, fleeing the civil Syrian civil war, much more desirable that you should be roughly in the area, you know, be in Jordan or or Turkey or, or Lebanon, than that you should be like helicoptered into Norway, um, which 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 makes no sense, despite the fact some people still argue for it. Um, but just very quickly on, on the question of as it were, why why some um, some terror terrible things you know get remembered and others don't and why we don't want to talk about certain things I think I think a lot of this is to do with the great fear of the follow on question which is what are you going to do about it um, and this is 
this is in a way the the really hardest uh, part of this. I I say at one point in the book, you know, uh, I've always, you know, throughout my career, politicians uh, um, in public and in private, you can see the terror they have in discussing any of this. They, you can see, as you said, that the knowledge that there's going to be career death if they venture into it. And but then beneath that, there's something else, which is that thing of what are we going to do about this? I mean, we can't do anything about it now. It's too late and so on. And I think that um, that tone is audible to us, to the public, that, 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 that really they don't know what to do. And so they're just going to keep spinning the lie for a bit longer. I, I, I've seen that. I've seen these lies unpack a little bit over the years, but it does happen very, very slowly. Um, and the example you just gave of Rotherham, I mean, it took years. We were we were far more worried in Britain about the possibility that the far right, uh, the British National Party and so on, would would use the Rotherham scandals for their political benefit than we were for 1,400 girls in one town alone being gang raped uh, um, uh, by groups of Muslim men. We were more worried about the far right BMP than we were from the crime. So, the, so even now, I spoke to a journalist recently who'd interviewed some of the girls who were, in, you know, were victims of that uh, uh, rape scandal, and um, he mentioned to me that he thought that they would be, as it were, talked out. You know, they'd given so many interviews over the years. You know, there's nothing for. No, not at all. Not at all. No one had really come to speak to them. Um, I mean, there was one or two journalists in the UK who really went into that in depth, but pretty much everyone just sort of kept away and it wasn't just that it was such a gruesome subject it was that it had a whole set of other questions that came behind it what are the views these men brought with them what were the views of their community and then the next one what are we going to do about it there's a fatalism beneath this which causes the lack of questions but i to me this question of what needs to be done about it is far too great a burden to place on any particular intellect uh, it's sort of like saying, well, if, if slavery has ended in America, what are we going to do with all the slaves? It's like, well, the question is, what is the facts? What are the morals of the situation as a whole? If we start getting information out, we're going to get a lot of very smart men and women who are going to start talking about this issue and through some miraculous form of social consensus, productive outcomes will be determined. But if we say to one person who's bringing facts that we find uncomfortable, oh, yeah, what's your soup to nuts A to Z solution to all of this? And then if they fail in any conceivable way, and of course they will, then we say, aha, therefore we better not talk about the facts. It's like that's a trap. That's a trap that's just designed to put a giant wall between the citizenry and the facts. Bring the facts out. Let the intellectual work begin. Let the free play and the free market of ideas work over these facts and try and figure out solutions. But denying the facts is for sure going to mean that there's no solution. And if there is no solution that is ever proposed and the accumulation continues and the resentment continues and polarization continues, well, we've seen that before in history. It does not have a very good outcome. No, I mean, I say in the book, I, at the end of my book, I, I give a chapter on uh, what we could could do even now uh, uh, to at least start to redress some of this across Europe. And then I, I give a chapter on what I think will happen. Um, but, but one of the reasons I did that was because, you know, I, I do, as you, as you say, think that we need to try to think of uh, uh, ways to address this. And I suppose there's one, one reason in particular, which is that 
those of us who care about ideas and about politics um, uh, often make a, a fundamental mistake that we think that we can reason people into uh, agreement. Mm. And one of my favorite quotes is from Jonathan Swift, uh, who, who, who said once, that you cannot reason somebody out of a position that they were not reasoned into. And um, most people haven't been reasoned into uh, 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 these issues. And the politicians haven't been reasoned into them. They've had to work at a lot of lies over the years and work them up uh, 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 to come up with excuses for what they've done and explanations for an otherwise pretty inexplicable uh, um, uh, act of self-destruction. So, so the best I think that can be done in a way, and this is a bit gloomy, but... Uh, um, you know, the, the facts are gloomy. The best that can be done in a way with, with most is, is, to, is to think about this, uh, because at some point also the facts change. I mean, you know, the example I've often given is, um, you know, it was pretty hard in the 1990s for the few people in America who did it to warn about the threat of Islamic terrorism in America. Most people said, you know, even policy people, wow, it's never going to really hurt people here. It wasn't until 9-11 happened that, 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 that people realized, oh, yeah, there's one now. And then recognize that people who have been thinking about it had some uh, some virtue in them. And I think it's the same with, with, with most of this. Really, what changes people is events. And when the events change, you've just got to hope that you've got some people around who thought about things in enough depth that the response uh, is decent. I mean, after every uh, terrorist attack now in uh, Britain, in Europe, it's a sort of, you know, weekly occurrence now, you know, car bomb go, goes off on the Champs-Élysées and, you know, it's sort of page five, you know, a few hundred words. And um, uh, most of uh, most of these events, they do shift things uh, uh, apart from at the political level where you continue to have these asinine sort of present tense technocratic discussions. But underneath all of this, that stuff actually is, I think, moving public opinion uh, and the public you know, I've, I've often said no, nobody, for instance, says I used to be worried about Islamic extremism, but I'm not anymore. Hmm. Um, uh, um, in Europe, it's only people who sidle up to you and say, I, I never thought I never thought it was true, all this stuff. And now it turns out there's there, there's a problem. And uh, of course, because that's because of events, it's because of three guys running around London Borough Market and across London Bridge stabbing people and slitting their throats and shouting, this is for Allah. You know, it's about a 22-year-old child of Libyan migrants standing at the exit of an Ariana Grande concert and detonating a nail bomb that, that slaughters 22 young people. Of course, of course, this is going to change, change uh, people's uh, opinions. But I just, I just wish that we'd been allowed to think about this and talk about it more widely. Because then we wouldn't be in all of this mess. We hope that this is not the 30s um, when it comes to, to these kinds of issues. So just, just to close off, if, if you don't mind, uh, we have a little bit more time, if that's all right. The, the call and answer situation where people bring up um, why immigration is inevitably valuable and useful and no one should ever have any questions or issues with it. Because, of course, as you point out, 
In the post-war period, there was a dearth of young people as the result of the war, particularly young men. But of course, that had happened many times before. Wars had been continual. There were religious wars, there were the Napoleonic Wars, there was the Franco-Prussian War, there was the First World War. And after the First World War, there was the decimation of the population through the Spanish flu, which killed, what, twice as many people as the First World War? Depopula- I mean, not to mention the Black Death, not to mention the fall of Rome. The depopulation is a regular occurrence in human society. It's happening right now in Japan. And you know what Japan is going to do? They're going to automate everything. And so you're not going to need as many people to produce as much wealth. The difference being, of course, that you had old age pensions that needed young people to sustain them, right? The, the welfare state and old age pensions was the big dividing line, I think, between the First and the Second World Wars. And let's talk a little bit about the argument that, well, you know, we've got a graying population, you've got an aging population, we need this young economic fresh blood like we're a species of aging vampires or something that need fresh meat to feed on. I don't see how that works. If if the people coming in are costing you more than they're paying in, I don't see how that's – it's like, wow, I'm bleeding out of one arm. I better open up the other arm to fix it. I I don't really see how that works. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, I I mean, as I say, the first thing is, of course, if you believe in the um, importing of uh, people from around the world to help your aging population at any rate. I mean, you're going to have to keep importing more and more people because your population is going to keep going up and up unless for the first time ever um, uh, people did come, gave their best years of their lives to Britain and then returned to their third world country, which I I just don't see. There's nothing you want when you're old and medically infirm than to go back to a third world country because that's where you're going to get the best doctors. (sighs) Yeah. And... um, so there's there's that uh, there's also there's also the um, I mean there's a whole set that, uh, the graying population thing is so strange I mean it presumes that all societies need to constantly grow in size by the way this is uh, that's an odd one isn't it because I, I mentioned one point in the book I remember in the 1990s or so the, the left in Europe were all for population reduction. Uh, um, there were these movements like the um, uh, sort of basically one child policies that Europeans, we should all have one child per couple. Zero population growth. I remember it from when I was a kid, too. Only it seemed aimed at white Christians. I'm not sure exactly why, but it was not exactly being proselytized much throughout the third world, sadly. Yes, it was it, it was it was fascinating because it was basically, look, we've all agreed that, that, you know, we're using up the planet's resources. And so if there are fewer people that we'd be using up fewer resources. So if not, well, I say all the Green parties went for it. But then the Green parties discovered and the party of the left discovered they had to tell people with darker colored skin than them that they should have fewer children. They just dropped the whole thing. So it was a total crock. And um, a great demonstration that, you know, the sort of failure on this stupidity comes from every imaginable direction. But but there's a whole set of other things with the graying population I just find fascinating. Um, You know, um, take one. Um, If it's a case that um, that that you are that you you do need the world to move to your Germany, for instance, uh, and you need to increase your labor force and you need young people. One of the things I have never had answered is this. If Germany in 2015 genuinely needed to import young labor, uh, uh, in fact, I'm like Sweden, for instance, it doesn't need labor. In fact, it, it doesn't need the thing. It, the only thing it needs less than, than, than a labor force is a labor force that doesn't speak Swedish. Um, <laughs> and, um, but, but, but then that's what they've now got. got the non-labor force that doesn't speak Swedish. Anyhow. 
But but if you were Germany in 2015 and you honestly needed to import people, you had the, all these jobs you really needed to do. Why not give it? Why not invite the 25 to 50 percent of young Portuguese, Spanish, Italian and Greek uh, uh, um, citizens who do not have work? You know, youth unemployment in these countries goes up to 50 percent in recent years. So why not? Why not ask the Italians, invite them to come and come to Germany temporary period all members of the eu come in and do the jobs but but this or is sorry to interrupt but alternatively if you really felt that helping a persecuted minority and refugees was a big thing you could go to south africa where hundreds of thousands of whites are currently stuck in squatter camps unable or, or not allowed to work or you could go to the boer farmers who are being murdered at unprecedented rates and you could invite them in and could be argued that they would have some more compatibility but really all it is is about isn't it is again is, is just finding lies for things that you just mucked up already. Mm. And, uh, you know, I say at one point, but it's an it's a, it's, it's a unpleasant thing to think about, but I say at one point, really, if you do believe that the only way you in your old age will be able to live in the comfort to which you've become accustomed, then I suppose really what you should do is to consider whether you would like to get a better and better standard of living in a country that is less and less recognisable to you. Or whether you would forfeit a little bit of that, possibly, I don't think necessarily, in order to um, retire and die in a culture which you know and understand. And across Europe, there are people now who will die in cultures that are totally alien to the ones that they were born into. And there are some people who will rejoice in that fact, who will take pleasure in the eradication of a culture. And there are other people who will simply mourn that fact and other people who realize there's nothing very much they can do about it. Um, but I think that, as I say, and as I give a few pointers in the book, it is salvageable that, but it would need us at this very late stage to realize that that's what's at stake. It's about living and dying in the culture that you inherited or living and dying in a totally alien land. Uh, and um, and that's a choice. And um, I think that it's obvious how we should choose it. But unfortunately, mired in inertia and, and a sort of societal depression about all this, I see at this stage very little likelihood of very many people taking the sensible decision there. And my... Goal, uh, other than the enjoyment of these conversations, Douglas, my goal in, in having these conversations is that um, Europeans have a history of being very nice and conciliatory until they're not. And right. it is very much my goal to have public conversations about challenging topics so that we can avoid any kind of blowback. The idea that the European culture, European civilization is going to sink into oblivion with no pushback, to me, is incomprehensible. I mean, uh, British people, I mean, I grew up in England, British people are extraordinarily nice, bend over backwards, give you the shirt off their back. Until they're not, and then they're really, really not. And yeah. and uh, this sort of, uh, you know, uh, be as nice as humanly possible, it doesn't take a lot to go from yeah. turn the other cheek to an eye for an eye. People have forgotten about some of the more aggressive aspects of uh, Europeans, and um, I hope that these conversations can avert any kind of blowback. But the idea is going to be a peaceful transition if, if, sh- if it should come to pass. Uh, that, to me, is incomprehensible and something devoutly to be uh, avoided, if, if at all humanly possible. And the only way to avoid it is with facts and conversations, I think. 
Yeah, I, I just I, I couldn't agree more. I just had one other thing. I mean, we, we after every terrorist attack recently in Britain, we, we've kept having that irritating meme passed around again and again, the sort of keep calm and carry on. We're all Brits. You know, we're not they're not going to destroy us. You know, we live through the blitz and so on. It's sort of, sort of uh, slightly faux bonhomie thing. But, you know, I've taken to reminding people recently of the fact that, that, that Britain didn't survive the blitz. Uh, uh, simply by keeping calm and carrying on. Keep calm and carry on was advice to Londoners after night after night of bombing. But at the same time that they, they were told to keep calm and carry on, we were also flattening German cities. Um, so it's a very strange thing when absolutely everything in your society is sort of geared to this this passivity, and this passive view that basically all we can be is mourners at our own funerals. And uh, as I say in my book, I entirely agree with your sentiment. I think that that could all change. And if it's going to change, uh, one would hope that it would change decently. But I think that the, the indecent, as it were, answer grows the longer people try to suppress conversations of the kind I'm very glad that we've been able to have today. All right. Well, I really do appreciate your time, Douglas. And I want to really encourage people... It took, you know, I mean, as you know, this can be a wearying topic. You have that wonderful German phrase, which escapes me now, weary of, of history. And of course, this is, it can be difficult stuff to to understand. It is a bit of a red pill, just looking at demographic winter, looking at birth rates, looking at projections, looking at immigration rates, looking at religions and cultures and compatibilities. It is a challenge. But it is, in fact, a much lesser of a challenge than most people in the West have had to face to to maintain freedoms throughout history. Uh, and there's no plague. There's no giant world war. There's no nuclear radiation. There's, you know, we, we have to read books and we have to have difficult conversations. That's where it stands at the moment. And that's where we have to stand. So I strongly, strongly advise people, uh, particularly the strange death of Europe, immigration, identity, Islam. We'll put links to all of that below. I hugely appreciate the work that you've done to bring this to people's attention, which you continue to do, not just as an author, but of course, uh, as a journalist, as a public speaker, and so on. And please check out the henryjacksonsociety.org website. And last but not least, I know these things take a while, but there's so many ways to reach people now. Twitter.com forward slash Douglas K. Murray. Thank you so much again for your time today. Such a pleasure.